Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. So um, I thought we'd do things just a little bit differently this morning. So um, we are in the middle of a series, and sometimes it's fun in the middle of it to just kind of break it up and do a little differently. So I wanted to tell you, uh, I'm actually only going to do five things this morning, just five things. And I wanted you to know what they are ahead of time so that you'll, you'll see the steps along the way, and you'll know how uh, close we are to being done as you see them uh, tick off, right? All right? <clears throat> give you a sense of security that uh, I am going to land the plane. So first, I'm going to tell you a, a quick little story about pot roast. Okay. Second, we're going to tackle a short but very difficult passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, uh, third, I'm going to tell you the entirety of this biblical story in under three minutes. I timed myself, and I'm going to do it. It's, I'm going to accomplish that. And then um, uh, four, uh, I'm going to eat a little piece of bacon. Sometimes you got to stop and take a break, you know. Um, and then five, the fifth thing and last thing that I'm, we're going to do today is we're going we're gonna to sh- uh, talk about the story about that time that Jesus saved a woman's life by uh, quoting Deuteronomy. So that's, those are the five things we're going to do today, okay? All right? Um, so first, a story about pot roast. Here we go. All right. Um, there was a woman, and she got married. And when she got married, she re- wanted to uh, make a special meal for her husband, her new husband. And she remembered in their family that her mom used to make a traditional pot roast, pot roast dinner. And so she, one Sunday she thought, I'm going to do this. And I, she got the recipe for her, her mom. And she got the pot roast. And she did all the things. However you cook pot roast, I've never done it. But whatever. However you do it, she did the things. And in the process, she took the, the meat from the butcher. And she cut the two ends off. She put it in her dish. She served it. Some of you heard this story before. And, uh, and she served it, and she brought it out for her husband, and her husband said, why'd you cut the two ends off? She said, well, that's, you know, it's the recipe I learned from my mom. And he goes, yeah, but why'd you cut the ends off? She said, well, my mom always did it that way, right? And then it, it got her thinking, and it bothered her. Like, why do we do that? So she called her mom. She said, I, I did the recipe. turned out great. It was great. But I'm wondering, why, why cut the ends off the pot roast? And she goes, well, uh, when you do a pot roast, you... She goes, you know, as a matter of fact, I just have always done that because my mom used to do that. That's, I got the recipe from her. Let's call grandma. So they call, they call Nana, and they get Nana on the phone. And they say, Nana, um, we did the pot roast, and it turned out great. We followed your recipe, third generation now. But why do you cut the ends off the pot roast? And she said, well, my pan was only this short. And so when I just, you know, I'd cut, you know. And so... You know, the, the, it's a cautionary tale, right, that, that there are traditions. We have traditions, and we experience these traditions. We make them a part of our lives. And sometimes the traditions continue on long after the purpose that they might have served. Uh, and this passage of Scripture we're going to look at actually uh, talks about that very thing. We're in a series right now, if you've been joining us or whether you have or haven't, um, we're, we're in a series uh, called Found in the Way. And it's actually a theme for us this whole year. Now, we're not going to be in the series the whole year, but it'll be a theme that we return to off and on. And um, the idea is that we want to be not of one way or the other way, but we want to be found in the way of Jesus. And we, we look to the inspiration, the inspiration for this way is found in the Sermon on the Mount. That is Jesus' most famous 
teaching, and it's found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So we're in Matthew 5 this morning, and we're kind of working our way. So the last few weeks, if you were here, you might remember we, we talked our way through the Beatitudes, which is kind of the opening salvo in this manifesto of Jesus. So we got through the Beatitudes, and then we talked last week about um, Jesus' summation of the Beatitudes, which is he declared something over us. He said, you are salt, you are light, you are city on a hill, right? And then Right after that proclamation, which is very encouraging, I was encouraged just reading it, and right after that, he takes this like hard kind of left turn, and he says, in just a few verses, he says something that's very difficult. In fact, a lot of biblical scholars claim that this little passage is the most difficult to understand part of the entire Sermon on the Mount. So I'm really excited to be teaching it this morning, because I love a challenge. So this is, this is uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. Okay? So it's, it's actually only three verses, but they're really challenging. So let's read these together. Um, we'll have them up on the screen, or if you have your Bible and you want to turn to Matthew 5, verse 17. I don't hear a lot of flaring of pages, so I'm just assuming you're opening it on your app. Um, here we are, Matthew 5, 17. Okay, so, so Jesus, remember, he just, he just called us something. He called us salt and light. He said, you're a city on a hill. Really cool stuff. And then he says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whew. That gets your attention, right? But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless you... Here's, here's the real tough part right here. Okay, you ready? For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty jarring little sentence right there, right? For those of... I mean, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you kind of feel like, yeah, I'm... I have arrived, and maybe I got a, one or two things to work on, but like I, I'm kind of in. But here he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of a bucket of cold water there. So there's two. When I read that, two questions immediately pop, stand out to me. One is, um, what does Jesus mean when he says "law and the prophets"? What does he mean by that? Because that seems central to the idea of what he's, this, this like condition that he's, he's placing on us, is, is for us to understand what he means by the law and the prophets. Now, we know what he says, but what does he mean by that? And the second question is, what does it look like for our righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? What would that even look like, right? Okay, so those are our two questions. We're going to tackle those today. But first, let's understand the whole history of the Bible in less than three minutes. Ready? Okay, here we go. So I'm going to, uh, with uh, Dustin's help, we, uh, we got a little slide that's going to that's gonna walk us through this. So if, if, you are, um, if you are a student of the Bible, you know that there's 66 books, okay? 27 of them are in the New Testament, and 39 are in the Old Testament. Now, the, the Old Testament can actually kind of be broken up into a, a, a few different ways. There's different ways to do it. But one way to do it is to break it up like this. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, and then all the other stuff. Okay? If you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's really strange. I mean, it's like really different than anything else in the Bible. Also, people 
read the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis, and they walk away with very different ideas about the, the age of the earth and how long humans have been around, right? Uh, you might be under the impression that the, that, um, the first 11 chapters covers about two to three, maybe 4,000 years, or you might be under the impression that it covers like 14 billion years. So that's a pretty, that's like, that's a pretty big difference, right? Um, and, and there's very intelligent people on both sides of that. So there's the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis, right? Covered in, uh, uh, and it covers the first history of the world. Right up until, right at the end of the 11th chapter of Genesis, you meet a guy named Abraham. Actually, at that point, he's going by Abram, okay? And Abraham comes from a line of people that would eventually be known as the Hebrews, okay? And Abraham uh, meets with God, and God makes him a promise. We call these promises covenants, and they're, they're scattered throughout the Old Testament. He makes Abraham a promise. And this promise is actually quite radical, um, but it's found in a children's song. Uh, do you know the Father Abraham song? Father Abraham had many sons, right? Many sons had Father Abraham. Okay, that's all, all good so far, right? I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. That's a radical theological concept found in that little Jesus, uh, in that little uh, Sunday school song, right? Uh, we are sons and daughters of the lineage of Abraham. We are not ethnically Hebrew, right? Most of us. I, I mean, I assume some of you might be. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not. And yet somehow I'm from the line of Abraham. How does that work out? Well, uh, that's, that was God's promise to Abraham. That his, his family would actually be found among the nations, um, and, and because of Jesus, that's true. So that, that was 4,000 years ago. Skip ahead about 400 years, and you got Moses and a new kind of promise, a new kind of covenant. You got 10 commandments chiseled on stone, and you got another 613 laws altogether, and we call that the Torah. That's where we get the word law. Okay, so now we're kind of zeroing in on what Jesus might have said when he said law and the prophets, right? So do we have that slide, Dustin, with the, uh, the books of the Bible up there? Or Richard, No. Oh, there we go. Okay, so here we go. Law and the props, right? So over here, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all right? So this is the story of those early people and the covenants that they received. And we call that the Torah. It gets translated as the law. But really what that means, that word Torah could mean guidance. It's just guidance, right? And then you have the wisdom and the history. You got Joshua and the song, all the way through Song of Solomon. There's a whole bunch of really cool stuff in there. And then you have the prophets, Isaiah, all the way through Malachi. And that takes us up to about 400 years before Jesus. Malachi is the smallest. I don't mean physically. I, I don't know what size he was. He could have been enormous. But his book is really small. And it, it's the last time that God spoke through a prophet before the coming of Jesus. All right? So you got the Torah all the way through the law and the prophets. So Jesus then, uh, 2,000 years ago, right? And he tells people about the kingdom of God. He, he meets with men and women. And he tells them, now, you guys now and spread my word, yada, 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 here we are, there we go. All right, biblical history in three minutes, there it is. So <clears throat> that brings us all the way up to the present day and us. So when Jesus, when we read the words of Jesus, right, and he says, the law and the prophets, this is what he means. Now, does he mean the books of scripture? Yeah, I think he kind of does. But what else does he mean? He means something deeper than that. They're, they're, the books of scripture represent something. It's a story, a story. It says the law and the prophets. So what do they do? They tell a story all the way through. From beginning to end, they tell a story. Now, what is the story? We know about the story because of the biblical authors, but the story exists apart from Scripture. It's a story of how God continually reaches in his hand 
into the human story and interacts with us, right? He offers conditional ways for people to connect with him, but it's also the story about how we continually fail to meet those conditions. Now, you might, be, you might hear the word condition and bristle at it a little bit and say, well, wait a second, isn't the love of God unconditional? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. I think there's good reason to think that. John 3.16 sounds like God's love is very unconditional. It's without condition. Love can be without condition, but that doesn't naturally flow into an unconditional relationship. Relationship has conditions. Relationships have conditions. They have boundaries in order to maintain some kind of sense of structure of uh, mutuality and, and equitability, right? So what did Jesus say about the story, about these relational conditions? What did he say? He said, he said, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So it's a story. And I didn't come to erase the story. The story continues. It continues here today. He didn't come to abolish the story, but to fulfill them. Here's, here's how Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember that at the time... You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel. That means the people of God. You were excluded. You were on the outside and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. In other words, we were on the outs, right? We were on the outs. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So remember, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. <clears throat> I am one of them, and so are you. It's because of the blood of Jesus. The way he fulfills the story is by establishing a new condition and then fulfilling the condition himself. His blood, our citizenship. So what does it look like for our righteousness to surpass the Pharisees, right? So we asked what two questions. What does Jesus mean by the law and the prophets? And we see that it means a story, a story. He came not to abolish that story, but to fulfill it. And then secondly, what does it look like for our righteousness to surpass the, the Pharisees? Because this is really important. This, this is like the kingdom of heaven is hanging in the balance for us, right? For us to understand this. <clears throat> Raise your hand if you brought a little bacon in a plastic baggie just to eat, munch on. Anyone? No, Aaron, really? I, you were my best bet. I thought for sure if there was anyone. No, okay. All right, let's go bacon. Yeah, we eat bacon at our house a little bit. Not every day, but quite a bit. We usually make a little extra so we have some left over and I can put it in a little bag and just kind of munch on it once in a while. You act like you've never carried bacon in your pocket. Come on. <clears throat> you know, if you look uh, through some of those rules, those conditions, those laws in the Old Testament, you read through Deuteronomy, in fact. That's a good read. Um, there, one of those laws was that the people of God could not eat pork. Yeah, that was one of them. Could not eat pork. Which is crazy, right? Because pork is delicious. <laughs> From the rooter to the tutor, <laughs> right? The whole thing is, like, delicious. If he didn't want us to eat pork, maybe he wouldn't have put bacon on the outside. That, I mean, it's like, it's delicious. Um, but why, why would, at a particular moment in history, to a particular people group, in a particular culture, in a particular geographical location, why would Jesus, or sorry, why would God institute a set of rules that included, hey, don't eat pork? Why, why would that be? 
Why would that be? It's not rhetorical. Why would that be? Does anyone have any thought on that? Yeah. So, so God took a people that were living in the rough. Okay, They were homeless. This is a homeless group of people. They had no home. They were living in the desert. They were going into a very rough part of the world, had very low standards for, uh, for health and sanitation. And he said, I'm going to give you some safeguards, some rules to follow while you're here. Not all rules for a specific people in a specific moment and a specific context could possibly be expected to transcend that context and be universal to all people in all moments in history. And thank God, right? Because he, I mean, thank goodness for that. Mm, good bacon. However, does that mean that we are now free to live like lawless people? How come? Why not? I get to eat bacon. Why do I have to follow any of the other ones? Right? Jesus talks about this and what he means, what it means to live in a way that honors what came before while walking in the freedom of his fulfillment of that past. All right? Jesus talks about this. Paul talks about it a lot in Romans. And we're going to talk about Romans later in the year, so I wanted to kind of save that. But, but Jesus talks about this in John chapter 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. In other words, you're now on the inside. We're in this together. Instead, I have called you friends. It's a good thing to be called friends of Jesus, right? For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. <clears throat> fruit so that, that will last and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now, check this out. He says, this is my command. Love each other. So there's this fulfillment, right? Our motivation to submit to his lordship is now not an obligation to certain conditions. It's a realization that he's fulfilled the conditions. And now we're in him. So when we submit to his lordship, because this is not without submission. You know, sometimes in, in Christianity, we talk a lot about freedom and uh, uh, freedom from the law and all, all of these things. There is freedom, but we are in submission to his lordship. He's the king. We are not. And when we submit to his lordship, we receive his righteousness. And when we receive his righteousness, we obey his commands. And when we love each other, we take on his righteousness. And when we find ourselves in submission to his lordship, it com completes a loop, right? When we submit, we take on his righteousness. So what does it look like for our righteousness to surpass the Pharisees? Well, it couldn't. These were well-meaning people. They, they were following at least 613 rules that we could, never, we could never pull that off, I'm telling you. Right? It would be really hard to give up bacon. <clears throat> so what does it look like for us to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? It happens when we find ourselves living in his righteousness. He does it. He completes the work. He completes the condition, the final condition between us and relationship with God. 
Remember what he said? I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the problem with the term kingdom of heaven. It's front-loaded with a bunch of baggage for us in Western Christianity. We hear kingdom of heaven, and what do we hear? We just hear heaven, right? Now, heaven is a reasonable way to talk about the presence of God. It is. But he didn't say heaven. He said kingdom of heaven. To enter the kingdom of heaven, what does that mean? All this is happening right here, right now. Is the kingdom of heaven coming, or is it here? Is it a place that we go, or is it something we experience in places like this? Yes. Yes. All of this is happening, and we're entering the kingdom right here. Not, not just entering, but we're extending it and making it available to others Theoretically, as followers of Jesus, everywhere where we put our feet, everywhere we go, we make the lives of people better, and that's the kingdom of heaven. It is good, isn't it? Here's my, uh, the big idea, my, my thought that I want to leave you with today is this. The way of Jesus, it raises the bar of truth, but then it levels the spiritual playing fields. In one act, he makes the goal so impossible that we couldn't possibly reach it, and then shows us how he met the goal, and we get to be in him. So his victory is our victory. That's really good news. That's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was such good news to the first century Jews. The good news was not about Jesus dying. The good news was that he conquered death. In other words, it's true what he said. That's the good news. We get to have the victory in him. You know, it's often, <clears throat> if you're like me, we read these stories, and it's, it's often true that we, we end up villainizing the Pharisees. Sorry, I got a little bacon in my throat. Hold on. <clears> throat> it's crispy. We, we read these stories, and it's so easy to villainize the Pharisees. We turn them into the bad guys. But if, if, you, if we read these stories the right way, I think what we should do is actually see ourselves in the Pharisees. I mean, think about it. These... These were God followers. These are not evil people. These were people that, that were pursuing God. They had built a scaffolding, a, a religious structure, in order to uh, prepare for a coming king, right? They loved God. They were waiting for a savior. They were upset about the government. <laughs> they didn't want to pay their taxes, but they did. Does this sound familiar to, to you at all, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, often the things that they built began with good intentions. This is, what, this is what I want you to hear right now. It began with good intentions, but then they devolved into a practice of maintaining the thing that they had built, long after their original intentions were forgotten. This is the cautionary tale for us. This, this is why we should see ourselves in, in the Pharisees. So <clears throat> I told you I was going to tell you a story. This would be our last thing. I was going to tell you a story about a time that Jesus saved a woman's life, and he used it by paraphrasing Deuteronomy. It's a great story. It's found in John chapter 8, verse 2. It goes like this. <clears throat> it says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people were gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, right? So let's do, let's do this for a second. Let's, let's try this exercise. Rather than seeing these guys as the villains in this story, let's take a step back and imagine that this is us. All right? Imagine that we have, we have built something. It's important to us. 
We wanted to connect with God. And so we thought to do that, we needed to build structures around the idea. We built churches, right? And we built uh, teams. And we set goals. And we had good intentions. And we made rules around those good intentions so that we would, we would follow our original intentions. And then we made more rules. And then we made some more rules. And then we made some more rules, right? And now here we are. It says the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, people just like us, brought a woman that was caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, Rabbi, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I, I want to take just a moment and point out that, um, I don't know if you understand the mechanics of how this works, but adultery doesn't happen with just one person, right? <laughs> Where's the other party? Where's the other person? This woman was caught in the act of adultery. How was she caught in the act of adultery by herself? She wasn't. These men brought this woman, is what happened. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Not true. Not true. Deuteronomy has some pretty wild laws. It does. And it does talk about adultery. It does not prescribe stoning as the result. And that law that they're referencing requires the presence of the two adulterers and at least three witnesses. So imagine how that would work. Okay, again, I don't want to get too mechanical on you. <laughs> two people participated in this. And in order to carry out a death sentence, you'd have to have three people that had seen it happen. How often do you think that happened? Right? So you couldn't accuse just one person. You had to accuse both of them. And you had to show that there were three people standing and watching. All right? This is the law that they're referencing. Who showed up to this party? Them and one woman, right? He says, so they said, the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Good question. They were using this question as a trap. Thanks, John. That's pretty obvious. In order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. Now, there's a ton of speculation about what he's writing there. I've, I've read whole like, articles and heard teachings on it, and I love them all. Nobody knows. We don't know. We don't know what he's writing. I like to imagine things. You know, Sometimes people imagine that he was writing uh, maybe the transgressions of the people accusing him. Maybe he was just writing the, the law that they're referencing. Is this the law you're talking about, you guys? Because in the, in the temple tradition in Jerusalem, it's well known that there was a floor covered in a fine, silty sand, and people used to talk about questions of the law, and they would take notes in this sand. That was a common practice. Um, so maybe he was just writing the law they were referencing. Let's see, guys, how does that go again? Uh, there should be two people accused, and I see there's one. There should be three witnesses that saw it happen. Don't have that, right? We don't know. He wrote something, but it was so profound. It says, when they, they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Go ahead, guys. Grab some rocks. Let's get it done. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. 
Whatever he wrote the second time, those who heard began to walk away one at a time. The older ones first, it mentions. The older ones first. Yeah, maybe they knew that law pretty well. Maybe they remembered a time when their tradition meant something more transcendent than as a means to use a woman and her life and spend it like currency in order to trap someone they didn't like. Maybe they remembered what these laws were for and they walked away. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So do you remember last week when we were reading the, the declaration of Jesus to his people? He gives the Beatitudes and he said, he said, you are the light of the world. Here he says, I am the light of the world. If we're to be the light of the world, then it's in places just like this. If we're going to be like Jesus and we want to be the light of the world, like he declared, we're going to do so in places just like this. There's a funny thing that happens. We all, you know, all of us as human beings, we, we begin with values. We have things that we value and that we believe, things that are really important at the core of us. And then it's very natural for us to make goals around those values. And then for those goals to then turn into tasks. You know, you look at the value that the, the, the people of God had. They, they valued healthy marital relationships. That's good. It's the cornerstone of any civilization, healthy marital relationships. The goal was to communicate to the people. So you got the value, then you have the goal. The goal was to communicate to the people the extreme importance of that health. Right? So remember how they weren't eating pork? God said, it would be good if you didn't eat pork. He's trying to preserve their physical health. Well, likewise, he was preserving their social health. Adultery, not good. Two people, build the families. This is, this is the right structure, right? So that goal was to communicate to the people how important that health was. And then the task, the rule, the condition, right, was to build a system of restraint around people's behavior. It's not enough to just say we value this. Sometimes we have to make rules around it, right? <coughs> Losing sight of the original value, though, devolved into this enormous patriarchal system of control that left women vulnerable to violence and fear and even death in moments like this. How awful that that woman was just being manipulated. Who knows if there was even anything there in her past, but she was just dragged along so that they could try to trap Jesus. That was the culture that she had was living in. But you see how it began with a worthy value. It started with a good goal. This should give us real pause, you guys, when we think about this. Perhaps some of us need to return to the values of Jesus. Perhaps we started with good intentions. Somehow we've reached a place where we merely have begun to service the task. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways to, you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find a home. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers. 
donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.